You join us in the midst of controversy. The referee has just blown for a free kick, but the home crowd are not happy. They feel the opposition player went down far too easily. They think he's trying to cheat to gain an unfair advantage. And what's more, I think I agree with them. Would you excuse me for a moment? Hey ref, did you forget your contact lenses? That was never a free kick. Ah, mm, that feels much better. Very cathartic. My name is Michael Roberts and I work in the development division of the WTO and as you can guess, football means a lot to me. Welcome to this, the last episode of the new season of Let's Talk Trade. In this final instalment of the Trade Goals series, we'll discuss rules and referees. So, let's talk trade! There are very fine lines between fair play and foul. Let's speak to someone who can give us some insights on this question. My colleagues, Marcus Gelito, who you heard from in episode four on players, and Claudia, our podcast producer, spoke to the former top Swiss international defender and director of football FC Servette, Philip Senderos. Philip, you made your career as a defender. How can I put this politely? You've been subject of disciplinary measures during your playing career. Are on-the-pitch disputes an occupational hazard? Yeah, I would say it's, uh, it's part of the game. We try always keep it uh, as fair play as possible. But as a defender, you live on the edge many times, uh, not only uh, in front of your goal, but also uh, in the battle with your opponent. Uh, it's a mental battle, I would say, first. And, and then uh, it uh, it's also becomes a physical battle, but always within the, the rules of the game. That, that's what we try to do. You've played against some of the best uh, attackers in the world. Who was the best player you ever played against? I mean, the, the usuals, I would say. Uh, Messi, Ronaldo uh, are the, the, the most impressive players to, to play against because they can make the difference at any moment. Is there a rule in football that you always wanted to change, a rule that you don't like? I, I love football, so I wouldn't say there's something that I would like to change. Um, nowadays, the offside rule, when they let the game play, after the play is offside, just to see uh, how the play uh, turns out is a dangerous rule because of what happens after. And sometimes some clashes happen after and people don't understand. I would say this is just like a, a bit of a gray area. And is there a referee that stands out in your memory from your playing days? Yeah, Colina was the iconic uh, referee that everyone remembers. I think he had an authority on the game, on the players, that is very hard to find again. Uh, he was right and he was harsh and also respected by a lot of the players. Can I jump in here? I find this figure of the referee quite interesting. People sometimes say the WTO is the referee of international trade and I wonder how far you can go with comparisons. How do you, as an active player on the field, perceive these referees? They seem to be in a difficult position imposing the rule of the game. They are a very important part of the game. They are an actor in, in the game and uh, we need to respect the referees. Without the referee, we wouldn't have a game either. There is rules to follow, like in every uh, job and in every uh, society and, uh, and on the pitch is the same. So the, the referee is an important actor that needs to um, make sure the rules are followed but also understand the game to be able to interpret every situation in, in the right way. As Philippe has explained, we know we need rules and referees. They're an intrinsic part of the game and essential to ensuring that play can take place. Much the same can be said of trade rules. 
But why do we get so annoyed by rules and the people who referee them? Is it because they place limits on what we can do? Is it because we feel that our opponent may be getting an unfair advantage? Or is it because we consider that the rules are stacked against us? Or is it all of the above and I just want to scream and shout in frustration? To sort things out, fortunately we have someone with a cool head. I'm joined by my colleague Antonia Carzenegger, who you've heard from in previous episodes. In this episode on Rules and Referees, we'll look at how footballing disputes arise and how these are resolved. We'll compare it to how disagreements are handled in global trade. Here's a clue. You can show a red card to a football player, but you can't really do that to a government. Second, we'll look at examining WTO rules dealing with what you might call unfair advantage. First out on the pitch today is Sean Cottrell. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Law in Sports. We're the world's leading knowledge hub and global community that provides people with accurate, informative and accessible legal content serving both the legal and sports markets. I think most of us will know how on-field disputes are settled in football. Obviously, the referee is in control of the behaviour of the players. He or she will issue verbal warnings and cautions, the famous yellow cards, and make awards for foul play in the form of free kicks and penalties. And of course, there's also the ultimate sanction for both players and coaching staff, which is expulsion, the red cards. What can you tell us, Sean, about how off-field disputes are solved in football? A typical lawyer's answer would be, it depends on what the contracts dictate. And more often than not, there'll be a form of either mediation or arbitration clause within the contract. Often those disputes are confidential and they're held in private. The decisions and awards are not published. If it relates to football context, FIFA have just updated or just about to announce new agents regulations. Part of their football tribunal will deal with agents disputes between clubs, agents and players, but there could be ethical issues that arise in terms of conduct of officials, conduct of owners, of clubs. And again, there's normally a mechanism within statutes either dictated by FIFA or going down the chain, you might go to confederation, depending on who's got control of a competition or an organisation. And then at national level, you'll have a national members association, so a national federation of football. They may have a body and you also may have uh, the league themselves. In essence, what you've just described there is what I suppose is called the sporting pyramid in football. Correct. Would you like to just expand how that pyramid is? So what you have at the top, you have FIFA. Then you have the member associations. So these are all the national associations across the world. They are grouped essentially by confederations, UEFA, Common Bowl, CONCAF, CAF, the AFC, those confederations will organise regional tournaments as in, say, you taking your way for example, they'll organise national competitions, they'll organise team competitions such as the Champions League and the European League. Then at a domestic level, making up their members are the national federations. And then they would essentially apply the regulations and statutes of FIFA down the pyramid as such. And all of this is based on contract law. So you want to be certain what's in the contract. When you sign up to a competition, in theory, you should be very, very clear about the terms and conditions in which you're signing up to. Most players around the world don't take any consideration because if you're just going to play amateur football, you don't realise the connection between the various governing bodies and how these regulations intertwine and how you can get caught by them. A prime example would be betting. A lot of players, particularly at lower levels, get caught out by betting on sport 
or betting on another team, even in a different league, that's prohibited under the regulations. And they don't realise because they say, hey, you know, I'm just a semi-pro player. I didn't realise that I was prohibited betting on a low-level professional. They just weren't aware of those regulations extended to them. There's a lot of rules out there, a lot of actors with potentially slightly different rules in place. That then gives quite a lot of scope for disputes to arise, not just sporting disputes on the field, but also commercial disputes off it. So due to the success of various major leagues, they've grown in popularity. Their money coming in through broadcast revenues increased significantly. What you're looking at are issues around piracy, issues of trademark infringement, licensing of goods. So are people abusing their dominant position? Are they involved in some unfair practices? And then we're just starting to see, which I think will be one we see increasingly, is, is issues around uh, data protection, the use of data, um, the commercialization of data. That's something that's really exploded over the last few years. What about the evolution of the dispute resolution systems themselves? As you've seen the number and the frequency of disputes arise, how have the processes themselves adapted for the resolution of disputes? We've seen a huge increase in the sophistication of the actors. That is the reality. You see now clubs in particular, but leagues all over the place, are able to hire very good and world-leading lawyers to represent them. So the, the disputes have become, I guess, more involved, sometimes more complicated, more intense, more expensive. Uh, and if not that, there's just a higher frequency of them. Are you also seeing an increasing number of cross-border disputes? National associations, legal jurisdictions? Or is that a continual trend? Yes, that's a continual trend. The sport is, is international by nature. You always have issues around who can and can't participate in a competition and why. You end up with a huge number of national federations and stakeholders who then start to be impacted by uh, any regulatory decision from FIFA. You know, affects the competition, so never to be, yeah. I would say that most of sport, most of football in particular, such an international sport, despite its very nature of existing, you end up with a lot of international disputes. Sean has explained how disputes can be resolved at the different levels of the sporting pyramid. Let's now get the perspective of a legal practitioner. We already heard from Carol Etter in episode four about the legal steps involved in the transfer of players. Let's get her perspective on where issues arise on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm a Swiss-based lawyer working for a law firm specialized in sports law in Geneva. At the same time, I'm a member of the board of FC Basel. So you're obviously dealing with um, legal issues on a day-to-day -day basis in the, in the football sector. Where do most disputes arise in your professional experience? What concerns football cases, we deal with contractual disputes, such as employment-related disputes between player or coaches against clubs or national associations, or transfer-related disputes between clubs. Furthermore, we have also many cases concerning disciplinary proceedings before UEFA and FIFA bodies. So while these kind of cases may be quantitatively higher, we also have cases concerning issues such as agents, minors, doping, licensing, eligibility and governments. Would it be correct to make a distinction between sporting disputes and commercial disputes and maybe between national and cross-border issues? FIFA plays a major role in the dispute resolution. 
in a case that has an international dimension because FIFA has jurisdiction over all contractual disputes involving member associations, clubs, players and coaches. So FIFA also oversees several different other aspects such as transfers, training compensation, solidarity contribution, protections of minors, eligibility rules and so on. So another major role FIFA plays is um, ensuring that decisions rendered by FIFA or the CAS are being complied with. So in other words, FIFA has basically its own enforcement systems that helps creditors to actually receive the amounts it has been awarded. So with this system, a creditor, which could be a player or a club, does not have to enforce a decision before a national state court in a foreign country. Which, from a legal perspective, is extremely helpful, no? That you have a third party enforcing the decision for you. Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, imagine you have, a, let's say, Brazilian player playing in Bulgaria and there was a dispute with the club. He went to FIFA and was awarded a certain amount and then he would have to actually enforce the decision before Bulgarian state courts while probably already being in Spain and playing in Spain, which would be rather complicated to actually enforce. So the system FIFA has implemented helps a lot in actually receiving the amounts due that have been awarded through that sports system. So football is a fast-moving game. What can you say about the need for speed in legal process in football-related disputes? So yes, indeed, disputes within the sports law world need to be resolved quickly. However, it depends on the kind of disputes, how urgent it is, especially cases revolving around the participation in a competition or a final. There is usually great urgency in having the dispute resolved quickly. So by way of example, there are currently CAS proceedings going on. CAS, that's the Court of Arbitration for Sport, based in Lausanne, Switzerland where both the Chilean and the Peruvian FA have filed appeals against the decision of the FIFA Appeals Committee because they claim that a player of the Ecuador FA was not eligible to participate in the qualifying matches for the FIFA World Cup. So while Ecuador actually qualified for the World Cup, Peru and Chile did not. So the goal of the latter is to take the spot of Ecuador in the FIFA World Cup. So now there is the need to have this matter resolved before the FIFA World Cup begins, because otherwise there will be a huge disruption of the competition. Producer speaking, this interview was recorded shortly before the World Cup kicked off. If you want to know how the cast decided in this case, have a look at the show notes. So, for example, before cast, the party can agree to expedited proceedings so that the matters may be resolved quickly. This could be as quickly as 10 or 15 days. Expedited proceedings can only be implemented if all the parties agree. From a lawyer's perspective, you always have to think about how to approach a case, whether it makes sense or not to agree to expedited proceedings, or if not, whether or not you have to request provisional measures. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this appeal system works within the sporting pyramid? And you mentioned the CAS, which is the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Could you just say a few words about that as well, please, Carol? Yes, sure. Um, 
CAS in most cases, and especially in most uh, football-related cases, acts as the appeal body. So it means that there has already been a first instance decision before, be it from FIFA or one of the confederations. So maybe by way of example, FIFA have or are anticipating that the their dis- dispute resolution table decides approximately 3,500 disputes per year, while the player status chamber will rule on approximately 700 disputes, and there are 6,000 regulatory applications on an annual basis. So this is a huge number. So this number alone shows that the pure workload of cases and together with the necessity to resolve those matters as quickly as possible, pertain a certain limitation on how thoroughly each case can be discussed at FIFA level. So while FIFA is actually doing an extraordinary job in resolving the disputes in the most professional manners, the bodies of FIFA in the end are still only internal bodies of an association. So consequently, the CAS as the appeal body and as being an internationally recognized independent arbitral tribunal is of utmost importance from a legal perspective. In terms of the law, the systems of law that underpin sport and underpin the WTO and trade systems, can you give us an idea of just how comparable or not comparable you think they they are? If I get the main function of the WTO correctly, um, which is to ensure that trade flows as smoothly, predictably and freely as possible, I would say this certainly also applies to the transfer system of FIFA as a private organization. So I would also say the main difference in sports is the autonomy of the associations, which may self-regulate its members with only a very few limitations, such as personality rights and fundamental mandatory laws, but are otherwise quite freely to enact rules how they wish so. And then there is this pyramidal structure with binding rules enforceable from top to the bottom. So we have at FIFA level, for example, the members are national associations and then the national associations have members that are clubs, the clubs have members that are players and and so on. Let's now take a look at how trade disputes arise and how they are resolved. For this, I reached out to the head of the rules division at the WTO. That's our colleague, Clarice Morgan. She'll talk about how WTO rules deal with the issue of unfair advantage. We're the division that deals with various sorts of trade remedies that can be applied where trade is found to be, if you want to call it that, unfair. Can I start by asking you about trade rules? Who develops them and how? The trade rules at the WTO are developed by all of the members of the WTO working together, and they negotiate with each other until they find a consensus. Now, this has always been the way that rules were developed in the multilateral trading system. However, today it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. When the original treaties were um, concluded in 1947, there were just 23 signatories. Today we're dealing with 164 members. So they have to make proposals, discuss, and find a balancing point that satisfies all. If any one of them objects to something, there's no deal. This podcast episode started with a passage of play where one of the players was trying to gain an unfair advantage. The crowd got very angry at what they saw was cheating. So what about this issue of unfair advantage? How is that dealt with? 
Well, in general, the idea of having fair rules for everybody is really embedded in the whole system. One of our key principles in the multilateral trade rules is non-discrimination, treating imported goods the same as the similar goods that are produced by your own domestic industry and treating all imported goods from all sources the same when they enter your, uh, your borders. That being said, we have three of these agreements that deal more directly with what you might call unfair trade. One of them is the agreement on anti-dumping. One of them is the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. And one is the agreement on safeguards. So anti-dumping is where you can apply an extra tariff on imported goods that come in at a very low price compared to what they sell for in the home market of the exporting country. That's called dumping. And if that practice causes injury to the competing industry in the importing country, then after an investigation, the importing country can apply an extra duty. Sort of similarly, if it's a question of goods that are subsidized and are causing injury in the importing country, then that country can apply what's called a countervailing measure on those imports to address the injury that's being caused. And again, you have to have a proper investigation to establish that those conditions are there. And we have very detailed rules to determine how those investigations run. And again, that's for fairness. And then finally, safeguard measures are a little bit different because it's not so much a question of, if you want to call it unfair trade, but it's really a question of trade liberalization that may bring about a surge of imports where you cut your tariffs by a lot and then suddenly the imports come in quickly and you have an opportunity or an ability to apply a measure for a temporary period to help your domestic industry to adjust. So again, it's, it's, it's to make sure everybody has a fair shot, let's say. Thank you, Clarice. I think we can all agree that we need fair shots in football and the same applies to trade too. Let's hear a conversation Michael had with Valerie Hughes, the only person to have served both as the director of WTO Legal Affairs Division and director of our appellate body secretariat. Valerie has first-hand experience of settling disputes in the WTO system. Valerie, can we jump straight into the action? And uh, let me ask you about uh, WTO disputes and uh, football. Now, one of the distinguishing features of association football is obviously the figure of the referee. The rules governing football state as follows. Each match is controlled by a referee who has the full authority to enforce the law of the game in connection with the match. Now, is there any comparable person that referees international trade? If so, is it more Adam Smith or is it Pierluigi Colina? What's your view on this? The fact is that there is no such person like the referee in WTO dispute settlement. The control remains with the members themselves. So even though they might appoint a person, an arbitrator, an adjudicator, a panelist to decide whether or not a rule has been violated, the ruling of that person, that arbitrator, adjudicator, doesn't have any effect at all until the players, the member states, until they decide that they agree with that ruling, until they adopt, as we call it, that ruling. So we don't have someone like a referee who stands all powerful and decides who's offside or not. Obviously, there are those at the border, customs officers, people who apply the rules. But in fact, a lot of 
the disputes get resolved, you know, bilaterally by people talking to each other and trying to figure out really what is the problem, trying to understand the measure that's causing the problem, trying to understand how it affects or doesn't affect that trade. And what you find in the in the WTO is that a lot of issues, measures, concerns are discussed in the committees. And you have something called specific trade concerns where members get to ask questions about how a particular measure is working, about how that is affecting their trade or others' trade. So you do have a lot of opportunity to talk through disputes without getting to that final point where you have that official quote-unquote referee to make that final decision. In the area of football, you have um, on-field disputes between players and then you have off-field disputes between uh, players and their clubs, between clubs and associations, between different associations, between confederations and the global governing body. Um, who are the players in trade disputes? And then what are the rules that uh, are used to settle those disputes? In the WTO, we have a state-to-state -state system. So it's not the private parties, it's not the, the industry itself that's bringing the dispute or acting in the dispute. Obviously, they're behind the dispute, encouraging their governments, the member states, to bring those cases. But it's the member states that bring the, the disputes, and it's only the member states that have a right to appear before panels and bring their submissions forward. So NGOs, economic interests are not the players themselves. They're sort of behind the scenes, either promoting or objecting to a particular uh, kind of action. So those those players are not really uh, front and center. It's the member states or the uh, customs territories. If you get to a global championship, then typically the time limit for awarding uh, an arbitral award is very short. So 24 hours in the case of the Olympic or Commonwealth Games and 48 hours for the World Championships and the World Cup. Now, trade disputes obviously can lead to many millions or even billions of dollars in lost revenue. So the longer those disputes take to resolve, clearly the, the greater the losses. So you would imagine that there is a need to expedite the resolution of those trade disputes. Can we try and uh, deliver a dispute uh, settlement within those timeframes, within those very short compressed timeframes, or is it just a preposterous idea? I'd have to say it's a preposterous idea. I mean, I, it would be really nice if you could have a decision within 24 hours or, or even within 24 days. But frankly, in this kind of dispute world, it's just not going to happen. It does say in the rules you should finish by six months. I don't know that there's ever been any dispute that's been resolved within the six-month timeline. And that's because there are a number of complex issues in every case, a lot of proof to be brought, a lot of evidence to be brought forward, a lot of paper. We call them submissions, written submissions, outlining the legal arguments and providing the support. It, the rules provide that you have a hearing, so you have to have an opportunity for both sides to get together and bring their case forward and speak to the adjudicators face to face. That's followed up with a question and answer session, so you try to get to the nub of the dispute. You try to figure out really where is the central element that we have to address in this dispute. And then, of course, we have a right to appeal. And so all of those things are going to take time. The evidence is sometimes very complex, scientific maybe, where you need to bring in outside experts. So unfortunately, it just doesn't move that quickly. So you get to the end of this process. And then what are the penalties? What would be the measures that would be taken? Would it be things like points deductions? Or is there anything equivalent to that in trade law? 
What we have in dispute settlement at the WTO, the idea is not to punish the other state when you're bringing a challenge. The idea is to ask that other state to remove the measure that's causing the problem, remove the law or the regulation that is affecting the industry that you're trying to uh, protect when you bring forward this challenge. We're not going to be slapped on the hand and lose points. What's going to happen is that your measure should be removed because it's found to violate your obligation under the WTO rules. If you don't remove that measure once it's been found to be a violation of the WTO rules, it is possible to request retaliation. So the winning state can say, I'm going to take retaliation. Is it really what you want in the end? You want that measure removed. You don't want retaliation because what is that? Retaliation is when the member state that has won the case is going to impose higher tariffs on the products from the state it just beat out in disputes. And what does that do? It puts higher prices on the products in the member state that's brought the challenge. So if you think about it in a, in a sporting sense, so there may have been something that happened that was untoward during a match, but you still want the ability to play the fixture in the future. You still want to have the ability to come back and play that team again. Exactly. So you, what you want is for the trade to return to normal. You want that measure to re be removed so you can continue trading. You don't want to have the person thrown out of the game. You want that trade to continue. Are there any situations of trade dispute settlement lawyers rolling around the ground, throwing hissy fits and arguing with the referee, the arguing with you know, the panel, anything like that that you, you've seen in your experience? Something akin to that, of course. I've seen dispute settlement lawyers get quite exercised. I've seen people, I've seen people cry. I've seen people do terrible things like uh, make accusations about others. But it's much more civilized, fortunately, than some of the things you see on football matches. And rolling around in the grass might make you feel a bit better, but it's not going to really impress the adjudicators. One of the reasons I, sp I guess why a player would roll around in the grass is because they're unhappy at the decision that's been taken by the referee or the decision of the panel. Now, due process is obviously an incredibly important legal principle. Is there an, uh, the ability to appeal decisions of WTO panels? There is a right to appeal. The rules say that any member has a right to appeal to the appellate body, and that right still exists. The difficulty right now is that there is no appellate body. We don't have the seven members that usually comprise the appellate body. So even though you have a right to appeal and you may actually do the legal process to file your notice of appeal, there's no one there to hear it. And so the right to appeal and the ability to appeal are two different things. Now, the Qatar World Cup is the first World Cup with women officiating matches. One of the, I suppose, the evolutions of dispute settlement is that there are an increasing number of women involved in officiating. Can you tell us something about that? I think by having more women in the system, you add to the legitimacy of the system because the system is serving everyone and you want to have the system reflect the body that it's serving. You're not necessarily saying that a woman is going to decide a market access issue differently. What you're saying is that a woman is going to bring an experience and an approach that might be different from a man's. Not better, not worse, just different. And we do have to see women reflected. And so that younger people will see, ah, that institution looks normal. It reflects the society we live in. Thank you, Valerie. To develop these insights further, I spoke again to Sean Cottrell. I asked him what he thought the issues would be that sports lawyers would be focusing on over the next five years. Human rights. I think like in other businesses, 
that we've seen other business sectors, sorry, with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, issues around supply chain management, around commitments to human rights, what that really means in practice. And more broadly, you could say environmental, uh, social governance, lots and lots of discussion in other industries. I think that's that's going to be very, very significant. So from a human rights perspective, you've got, the, just as a base one, a right to a fair hearing. So you've had situations at the European Court of Human Rights, particularly in football, where essentially the judge, juror and executioner were the same people. Um, so a player, a club has been sanctioned by their federation. They then appeal that. It goes to exactly the same people. Those people maybe were hand-selected or at least favoured when they were being picked. So the neutrality and the right to fair hearing was infringed. So that's one example, just on a dispute resolution perspective. Another example would be freedom of expression, such as the Olympic Games, where they want to make sure they control the moment. They don't want an athlete to protest at the podium because it damages, as they believe anyway, at least the commercial value of that. Everyone's got a right to a freedom of expression. So that tension that's there, we're talking about this balancing of people's rights, the right to participate in sport safely, free from abuse and, and discrimination. Sport can be very powerful for that, but also can present some problems in that regards. But yeah, it just touches on every, everything you can imagine. Employment conditions, to work in a safe environment. So there you have it. That's full time, not just for this episode, but for this season of Let's Talk Trade. In this series, we have explored how association football is a local game and a global product. We have looked at how trade and trade policy interact with the beautiful game. We explained how the global value chain of soccer comprises balls, pitches, players, fans, games and rules and referees. Antonia, if there was one takeaway from the series, what would it be? Something that I found interesting is this juxtaposition of the local and the global. One of the particularities of physical football is that it remains rooted in place, but it's consumed globally. My main takeaway? Well, football, it's just not cricket, is it? Many of the insights that we've shared with you are applicable to other sports, but there's a whole world of other issues out there. Just think horse racing, sports climbing, Formula One or even Zumba all have their own issues. We hope you enjoyed listening and thank you for following us on our journey along the global value chain of the beautiful game. And a big thank you to our local club, Servette FC. Allez les Grenades! Allez les Grenades! Allez les Grenades! Allez les Grenades! Thank you for listening to the Let's Talk Trade podcast. The creative mastermind, writer and main host in this trade goal season about the global value chain of football is Michael Roberts. Sound editing and publishing by Roxana Paraskiv. The podcast is produced by Claudia Witte with support from Jana Borges. If you want to learn more about the topics we explored, please check out the show notes on the WTO website at wto.org podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Let's Talk Trade on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.